what may seem closer to nonsense and gibberish than carefully crafted language, new research published in the journal Psychological Science suggests that parents have an innate ability to use just the right vocabulary and sentence structure to match the precise needs of a child's developing brain. This brain-teaching language then becomes more and more complex as toddlers begin to grasp the fundamentals of language. This is Charles Blue, and in this episode of Under the Cortex, we'll talk with Daniel Yurofsky, a professor at Carnegie Mellon University who studied how children learn language. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Charles. I'm excited to be here. So you study language. What is it you were specifically looking to uncover in this particular bit of research? So we were motivated by two phenomena. So the first is that children seem to learn language just really fast. So if you've ever tried to learn a second language as an adult, you've probably found that it's hard, um, that it takes a lot of work, that you know you don't really ever reach the level of proficiency you wish you could, and no one would ever confuse you for a native speaker. But children, despite being bad at you know just about everything relative to adults, children are just exceptional at language learning. It's no problem for them. And the second phenomenon is that we talk to children really differently from the way we talk to adults. So we do things like slow down how we talk or modulate our pitch up and then down. We shorten our sentences. We do all kinds of things like that. And the question we were interested in is whether these two phenomena are actually deeply related to each other. That the reason, or at least part of the reason that children learn language quickly is that they're learning from language that's easier to learn from than the kind of language that adults learn from. So if you think about, uh, like if you took math in, in high school and college, maybe you took um, you know, arithmetic and then maybe algebra and then geometry and then trigonometry and then maybe eventually calculus. You didn't start with calculus. The idea is that when uh, children are getting language, when they're hearing language from their caregivers, they're not starting with calculus either, that what's happening is um, parents are producing language that's at kind of just the right level of complexity for children as they're developing language um, by keeping track of what they know and what they don't know, probably not consciously, probably not with an intention to teach, but that that's how it ends up nonetheless. I can appreciate that. When I was in high school, I got to spend a summer with a family in Spain. And despite my many years of taking basic classes about language and sentence structure, the most effective thing I remember was sitting around the kitchen table with each person picking up an item and slowly saying, this is a fork, this is a spoon, this is a cup. And it was the most fundamental basic approach that I could think of, and it stuck with me. So it was a different way than standard, let's get into the classroom and learn how to say, donde esta la biblioteca. But what did your research specifically reveal? What were you looking at in this paper? Yeah, so there's, um, you know, a lot of really compelling correlational research um, trying to address this question. So psychologists who study language development have been taking a kind of big data approach um, to this kind of stuff for a long time. So um, we analyze recordings of parents and children interacting in their home, hopefully, you know, as naturally as they can be, um, lots and lots of parents and lots and lots of kids and trying to understand the kind of regularities you see 
um, in these kind of recordings. And so you find things like, for instance, that parents produce longer sentences to children who know more language. But um, these, these studies are correlational. You can't know if what's happening is parents are tracking what their kids know about language or maybe just tracking their age. Um, and you just say more complex stuff to older kids. Or if maybe you talk about different kinds of things to older kids than you do to younger children. Surely you do that too. And maybe that's what's driving the effect. So what we wanted to do was to try to basically control, uh, measure what we what parents think their children know, and then bring them into the lab and have them talk about um, these particular things we got to measure on and see, um, okay, do parents talk differently about things that they think their children know versus things that they don't know? So we brought uh, parents and, and their kids into the lab, and we had them just play this little game where the child would see three animals at a time, and the parent's job would be to get them to pick one of them using language. So say whatever you want to get your kid to pick the leopard instead of the lobster or the zebra, say. And then just measuring what parents said. Um, we measured a bunch of different things, but um, the easiest one to talk about is just the length. How many words did they say? And what we found was that at the individual item level, so if parents think their child knows leopard or doesn't know leopard, that controlled how many words they say, the complexity of what they say, whether they talk about its color in addition to just its name and, and so on. So parents have this um, really precise model of what their child knows about um, language. And then they recruit this model when talking to their child um, in a way that gives them you know, more information for things that they think their child doesn't know and less information for things that they do. So what in this research specifically was a finding we didn't really understand before? What is this new knowledge that we've developed by this study? Sure. So um, I think what we were really struck by was, was just the precision of, of parents' models of the children's language development. So um, we all have actually pretty good intuition about what kinds of things are hard in language and what kinds of things are easy. So, you know, you don't need to have a kid to, to tell me that kids probably learned leopard after they learned cat. Um, for lots of reasons. Leopard is longer, you you know, talk about leopards less often, you see fewer leopards than cats, and, and so on. So, you know, we could have found that, oh, parents use that kind of information, just in general, how hard words are, or how easy they are. Or they could have used, you know, in general, um, how many words does my kid know? But they don't just do that, they actually track at the individual word level, and, and talk differently about leopards versus dogs versus zebras, and so on, on the basis of um, what, what they think their child knows about that particular word. Um, and, and this isn't a teaching context. So we didn't say, okay, teach your kid about um, leopards or teach them about um, zebras. Um, they're just playing a game where they're trying to get their kid to pick the correct animal. So they shouldn't be intrinsically motivated to teach in this case, um, just to communicate successfully. And we found that um, that's all it takes. And so not only do parents use this really precise, like individual word knowledge, they update it if they get new information. So if you thought your child knew the word leopard, and then you said, okay, honey, can you pick the leopard? And then they pick the zebra instead. The next time around, parents give more information. They say, oh, get the leopard. It's the one that's like the cat, the spotted one, right? So they don't just have these models that they come into the lab with. They actually update them in response to new information. And that's really exciting because it suggests that, you know, kids might really be getting language that's really precisely tailored to them, not just to them as a three-year-old, but to them in particular, um, because of what their parents know about their language development. So would a child going in there with, not necessarily a stranger, but with someone who is not necessarily a parent, would they be able to uncover this, this precise level of language necessary to communicate with a child? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So um, my guess would be that everyone would do some some adapting. Like you, you just know that you shouldn't talk to a two-year-old the way you talk to a six-year-old, the way you talk to a 12-year-old, the way you talk to an adult. So you start somewhere. Um, but then as you talk, you learn, you know, learn more about what the child knows and doesn't know. And you would do that kind of updating, but you'd be starting from less information. So, so the idea is, you know, what, what might make um, at least some folks' parents particularly special in, in this way is that they spend a lot of time with them. Um, and so they know a lot about their language development. But if, you know, what happens is a child is spending a lot of time with their nanny or their caregiver at daycare or whoever they spend a lot of time with, um, the thought is that um, this is a really general phenomenon about just talking to somebody in a way that they can understand. It's the kind of thing we try to do all the time, no matter who we're talking to. And, and in this case, it just happens to be that the person talking to the child knows a lot about them. You know, it's not specific to being a parent, um, except insofar as you spend a lot of time with your kids. So, um, for instance, what we're trying to do now is to try to understand how this might generalize. So there's a lot of, for instance, cross-cultural variability in, in how much of their language input children get from their parents. So some children hear a lot of their language input from their siblings or other peers. Um, and an open question is, you know, to what extent, um, say, your seven-year-old brother can adapt to you the same way that your parents can. So um, in an ongoing study that um, my grad student, Ashley Lung, who's the first author on this paper, and another grad student who works with me, Ben Morris, uh, are doing, they're, they're trying to understand um, whether children can adapt in the same way to younger children and produce the same kind of, you know, really finely tuned input, or maybe whether it's a little bit different to learn, say, from an older sibling versus your parent. How many people were involved in this research? Was this a cohort of 10 to 100 kids? How many samples did you look at to try and get to this conclusion? Sure. So um, we brought, uh, I think, 46 um, children and their parents into the lab um, and then had to exclude a couple of folks because, um, you know, the experiment didn't go quite right or, you know, the child got fussy or whatever. So the final sample was 41 children and their parents. So are there things about language development now that we still don't really know that are essential? Where's the big questions that we still have to tackle? That's a great question. So there's, you know, there's a lot we don't know. Um, so, you know, maybe one of the critical issues is, is how children know that um, people are trying to communicate with them in the first place. So um, a lot of the work that we do in, in my lab and that a lot of folks um, do in other labs um, starts from the you know, assumption that, um, you know, children are interacting with people who are trying to communicate with them. If you know that somebody's trying to communicate with you, you can learn from them in a particular way. But it's it's not obvious how, how you um, get to know that someone's trying to talk to you and not just say producing sounds with their mouth. And one of the big open questions is how children come to understand that, whether they maybe even at the very earliest stages already understand that or whether they have to learn it over time by observing when people are talking to them and not, or how, how it looks like or how it sounds like when somebody's communicating to them. Um, so that's one, one big open question um, that I think is really exciting. So what's the very next step for you in this research? What's the big question that is next on your docket to try and unravel on this particular path? Sure. So um, like I mentioned, uh, this, this question of generalizability is really important here. So when you asked me, you know, is it, is it specific to being your parent or is it anybody who would be talking to you? That's a question we're really interested in. Another question that we're exploring a lot in this vein is a lot of language isn't just, you know, there's one word for one thing. Like this, the same thing is both a leopard and a cat and an animal, or it might be, you know, your pet, which has a different name and so on. And one of the things we do when we talk to other people is we negotiate what we call something. So in, in you know, in one context, I might call something a shoe, 
because that's a good, easy word to call it. But if there are a bunch of shoes, I might call it the loafer instead. Um, and that's a skill that everybody has to develop in order to be a good conversationalist. And that also seems to, to happen without, you know, a lot of conscious struggle. So when we study these kind of, um, they're called conversational pacts, these agreements about what to call something, um, we find that for very young children and their parents, parents are doing most of the deciding about what to call something. So it's not, you know, that the child can only conceive of this as a rocket ship. And, and so that's what they end up on. Um, it turns out that children maybe don't um, know what a good way of describing something is. And so they look to the parent for, for help and they negotiate together and, and often end up with something that the parent suggested, but which is a good fit for the child rather than the other way around. Um, so that's kind of another kind of thing we're studying is um, how do you learn not just the this is called a leopard, but that in this kind of setting, you might call it a cat. And in this kind of setting, you might um, call it an animal. Um, and with this person, you might call it, you know, your pet Zeke or whatever. Well, thank you for shining a little more light onto the development of language in children. And uh, now when I go talk to my great nieces and nephews, I'll have that in mind to negotiate the proper vocabulary. So this is Charles Blue with the Association for Psychological Science. I've been speaking with Daniel Yurofsky, professor at Carnegie Mellon University, who has studied how children learn language. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much. Under the Cortex is a production of the Association for Psychological Science, which is dedicated to advancing scientific psychology across disciplinary and geographic borders.